Let us have a moment of truth. <laughs> the Resident right. Act, in comparison to the Compromise of 1790, please, my, my gosh, that's got me uh, quite, uh, quite confused. What's going on? All right. So first of all, today is Indigenous Peoples Day, Columbus Day. So if people are tuning in thinking that we're going to cover Columbus Day, I'm going to refer people to the website because about a year ago, in fact, exactly a year ago, we did a show about Columbus Day. So we're not going to redo that show, but I invite people to to go to the website and to, to read all about it. Tonight what we're going to do is a project I've been working on for about a week or so, and I have not had an opportunity to write it up. So ordinarily I like to refer people to a pending post or a post that I've just written. And, and what are we talking about here? We're talking about the website statutesandstories.com. And the website statutesandstories.com is where we, and I like to make sure people know to use three T's when you write statutes. Statutes has three T's, statutes, A-N-D, stories.com. And the quick observation is anyone can go there, and you've got all kinds of good material. We use primary sources and letters, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, letters and diaries and laws. So what you can read on Statutes and Stories is the Residence Act. And when Manny mentioned this compromise, this is the compromise that generates the Residence Act. And we have on Statutes and Stories a, a blog uh, from maybe two years ago. We wrote about the Residence Act, which is the law passed by Congress, the act of Congress that moved the location of the first capital. So, Manny, I'm going to start off with a question, if you can hear me. Yes, I can. All right. Where was, when we, we talk about under the Articles of Confederation, um, you know, they had multiple locations. If we have time, we can talk about that. Because during the war, uh, you know, they moved around to escape from the British, and they also went to, to escape from the American troops who weren't getting their pensions and weren't getting paid. So uh, they had to leave from Philadelphia at various times. But uh, now we're, we're going to start our story in 1789, which is when the new federal Congress meets, and they have to decide where are they going to make the permanent location, because it was just temporary. Where are they going to make the permanent location? So the question is, where did, under the 1789 new Congress, where did they first meet? And the, 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 the hint, and you know the answer, but the hint is that they did not meet in Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. did not yet exist. So where was the first capital? It was New York. It was New York, right. And uh, people who've watched the musical... And people who've listened to some of the Hamilton songs, you know, that Hamilton came from the Caribbean. He came from Nevis, right? So he's, uh, he comes, he's an immigrant, but the, he was a New Yorker. He considered himself a New Yorker and an American once he uh, made his roots in America. So the new Congress is meeting in New York because that's where they were, were meeting at the time under the Articles of Confederation, not in Philadelphia. And people know that Philadelphia is where the Constitution was written. But uh, they have to make all kinds of decisions. So there are, when you talk about a term of Congress, Congress meets for two years. And generally, you describe it as sessions. So each of the one years of Congress to make the two-year term is basically a session of Congress. So the first session of Congress, which begins meeting in May or so of 1789, and the first session of Congress, they establish the infrastructure, if you will, of the new government. They set up the Treasury Department. They set up the War Department. They set up the Secretary of State, which would be Jefferson. And Hamilton, of course, is the Secretary of Treasury. So we, we talked about in prior evenings the Oath Act. They set up the oath that you have to take. That was the first act. And I always like to tell people that's a good trivia question. What was the first act of the now, first Congress? I'd like the that audience was, to know. The oath, I'd like the audience to know how important the Oath Act was because of the unalienable rights, correct? 
So, you know what? I, I don't want to get too detracted today from our main story, but that's, listen, I'm glad you asked because people can go to the website, Statutes and Stories, and it was one of the first acts I blogged about, which was the Oath Act, which was the first act of Congress setting forth what oath when you get sworn in. And you know, this is housekeeping. When you get sworn in and you're a congressman or a congresswoman or you're a senator, what is the oath you take? Because the Constitution only gives the oath of the president. It doesn't give the oath of members of Congress. So the first act that they adopted, as I said, for housekeeping purposes, was to set the oath of the congressmen and the senators. Right, so that was the first session of Congress, doing the, the blueprints, if you will, of how the government should work, setting up the courts, the Judiciary Act, etc. Um, that was the act creating the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court didn't exist yet. The, the Congress had to lay out you know, the concept of the Supreme Court existed, but they had to do the, the groundwork. So that was the first session of the first Congress, 1789. Now you get into the second session, starting in 1790. So Hamilton is the Secretary of, of, uh, of Treasury. Jefferson is the Secretary of State. Henry Knox is the Secretary of War. But now they're getting into the more difficult questions of putting all the pieces together to get the government working now that we have it all laid out. And Hamilton was asked by Congress to give a report on, you know, what is the, the debt obligation? obligation, you know, the tariffs, you know, the taxes, how, we, how do we put all this together? So he writes this monumental report, which we talked about uh, last week with Nancy. We, we talked mainly about his report on manufacturers, which came in a little bit later. But the first big report he writes about is the report on the public credit. And he comes up with a financial plan. And it's a multi-pronged plan where he's going to sort of capture, and I think the total numbers is around $77 million was state debts, and federal debt and foreign debts, so three buckets of debts. And his proposal is, and that's not the subject for today, but to give everybody some background, is to not just pay off through the taxes that he wants to put in place, which is mainly a tariff and some excise taxes, but the, his idea is that we're going we're gonna to restore credit to the federal government, we're going to put in place a way to collect the taxes and to give confidence to investors, but we're also going to take on state debts and we're going to, and this was referred to as the concept of assumption, we're going to assume all the state debts, we're going to put it all under the federal infrastructure, the federal umbrella, and we're going to put in place a program to pay it off. And, you know, we owe money to France, we owe money to the creditors, we owe money to our soldiers. So he wants to take, it's about $77 million, which is in three buckets. And today, $77 million is nothing. But back then, that was... was but hey, but the Congress is still asking the president to pay off the state's debts. So, so, and eventually they did pay off that debt. So, long story short, you know, he has this financial plan, and the problem was, and we'll get into the de the details with this tonight, because that's our story. And tonight's story is about how does Hamilton get his financial plan through? When, you know, I'll try to simplify things. Three states, mainly Virginia, and there were two other states, and, and Georgia, and there was a third that had, had mainly paid off their, their obligations from the Revolutionary War. But Massachusetts, Connecticut, and South Carolina had not paid off their obligations. So you know, why should South Carolina get its debt paid off by the federal government when Virginia had paid for its debts from the war? So part of the answer that Hamilton and Washington give, but mainly Hamilton, is that it was a united effort. We fought the British, and you know the British spent more time in South Carolina creating havoc, and the British spent more time in Boston and in New York, you know, destroying farms, and that's the places where the battles were fought, right? So it could have been fought anywhere, but because we fought together, we should, according to Hamilton and Washington agreed, you know, it should become a national debt, because the states are all fighting for independence. So, so there's this debt issue, and the problem was that, generally speaking, the southern states, mainly Virginia, uh, South Carolina was the exception, but the southern states had paid off their debts, and of course the musical 
makes the point that it was a lot easier for the southern states to pay off their debts because they didn't have to pay their employees because their employees were slaves. So that, that's another conversation we can have later. But long story short, the southern states, primarily Virginia, and Virginia at the time was the largest by population and by size. Virginia was, was the big player, and we've talked about in other nights that Virginia created you know, the first several presidents other than John Adams. Washington was from Virginia, Madison was from Virginia, Monroe was from Virginia, Jefferson, of course, is from Virginia. So you have all these Virginians which dominate the government for the early years. So if Virginia does not want to assume the debts, because Virginia basically paid off its debts, how do you get a Virginia to come along? And that's going to be this big question, because Virginia and Madison are in Jefferson, Basically, and Jefferson's sort of off on the sidelines, but, uh, you know, Virginia is opposing, and I'm using Virginia sort of as the example of southern states, are opposing Hamilton's financial plan, right? So how does he get this through? That's the conversation for tonight. And before we go into this conversation, I wanted to remind everybody, and maybe let's remind everyone at the end of the evening also, that there is a book club meeting. So, Manny, do you know when the book club meeting is? You gave me a note here, and the book club is... Come on, why can't I find the book club? Because my phone has got so many messages on it. Go ahead and tell us. Okay, so I'm going to tell everybody. So as people may remember, we started a book club with the Daughters of American Revolution, one of the chapters out of, out of Miami. We also combined with the, the, uh, the Alexander Hamilton Awareness October Society. The, which is I the, got it already. October uh, the 18th and 16th. October the 18th, so this coming Sunday. So this is a reminder to everybody that uh, this is the book club. We're under the umbrella of several organizations, the AHA Society. And how do you say the AHA Society, Manny? Uh, just like you said it, AHA Society. The AHA Society. Aha. Right? So we're with the AHA Society. We're with Nova University. They're, they're a lifelong learning institute. So the professor we have that's going to be speaking is part of our book club, which is interactive. So it's not just the professor. So his, his name is Stephen Knott, Professor Knott from the Naval War College. So he teaches officers in the Navy and the Marines. Now, because you don't just study how to shoot guns, you study, you know, uh, you can get an education in, in, the, in the, the armed forces, and these are officers. So teaching officers, a broader conversation. So he, he is a professor at the Naval War College, and he's written several books about leadership and the presidents, and his, he's, a, his, he's a historian. And uh, the subject of the book we're going to be discussing is called Alexander Hamilton and the Persistence of Myth. So it is 6 o'clock next Sunday. It's a Zoom meeting. It's totally free, and people get to ask questions, and you get to speak with the author. And we will likely have, I can't promise, but we will likely have, because we had last month, uh, because we were connected through, through the AHA Society, members of the Hamilton extended family. So Hamilton's great-great-great-great-grandson and others who, uh, and his grandson, of course, is not you know, a young child. This is, you know, he's older than me. Uh, Douglas Hamilton was at the last meeting, as, as were some other members of the family. So anyways, people are invited to join. It's free, October 18th, 6 o'clock. And you, because we're worried about Zoom bombers, and we can talk about what that means later. I don't know what that means. And the way you register is you send an email, and this is easy. You send an email to register at alexanderhamiltonbookclub.com. So that's how you get in. You have to send an email, then you'll get a password. Register at alexanderhamiltonbookclub.com. Any questions about the book club, and then I'll move on. No, I, I don't have a question. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I definitely would love to participate. Yeah, and we, we welcome you, and it's a great opportunity for people. And you know, we've talked about this in other nights. Because of COVID, and this is where the idea came from, 
because of you know people being sequestered, if you will, in their houses, especially you know older senior citizens. How do you get them out there participating and you know looking beyond their walls of seclusion? And the answer was, among other things, using technology, using Zoom, you know, to have this interactive. Normally, book clubs meet in someone's kitchen or in their living room, and you know half a dozen people have drinks and you talk about whatever the the book is. But here we're going to have people, as we did last month, from all over the country, which is why it's at six o'clock at night because. It's a long story. It's coming up against football, so we can debate that. But in any event, it's next Sunday. So tonight, our discussion on statutes and stories, the radio show, is the Hamilton financial plan. And part of his financial plan, you know, taking, as we said, the state debt, the federal debt, and the international debt, combining it all together, issuing securities, uh, putting in place a methodology to pay it off, and he had to study, you know, what kind of income would the federal government make, so what could we afford to pay, what interest rate would be paid. There was also a controversy over who do you pay the bill to. Do you pay it to the soldier who, you know, who was originally owed the debt, but if the soldier sold his IOU to someone else, do you pay the money to the investor or to the soldier? And the soldier may have only sold it for cents on the dollar, and there was a dispute over that between Hamilton and Madison because people have different opinions, and we'll talk about that maybe another night. But here the question is this resonance. Act. So the, the compromise, and here we're going to talk about the musical. So in the Hamilton musical, one of the songs that everybody who's seen the musical or the movie, now that it's on Disney+, Plus, the song is called The Room Where It Happens. So let me read you some of the lines from the song, The Room Where It Happens. And Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda uses a little bit of poetic license. So he's trying to portray that this meeting takes place with Jefferson, with Madison, and with Hamilton, and Burr is not in the room where this deal is reached, this compromise. So it's described as the room where it happened, and Burr is excluded from the room. So here are some of the lyrics. Two Virginians, and I'm not going to sing this or try to rap it, but two Virginians, this is from the lyrics of Hamilton, two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room, diametrically opposed foes, they emerge with a compromise, having open doors that were previously closed, bros. The immigrant emerges, this Hamilton, with an unprecedented financial power, a system that can shape however he wants. I'm sorry, a system he can shape however he wants. The Virginians, Madison Jefferson, emerged with the nation's capital. And here's the piece de resistance. No one else was in the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played. And there are wonderful rhymes here. How the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. So this is all from the musical. So what about the truth behind what actually happened? And the answer is that um, it's a little bit more complicated than the musical makes it out to be. And I'm not criticizing the musical because the musical is basing this on a, and let me give some more background, Hamilton never writes about this supposed meeting. So Hamilton is a very active writer. He doesn't really keep a diary, uh, but you know he never discusses it in any letters. And well, none it, of his it family make, members mention this story. It would not make meeting. sense, though. So we don't know Hamilton's side of the story. Jefferson is a very, you know, he keeps a diary. And, and Madison also you know, writes all kinds of letters, but he never describes this. So we only know Jefferson's version of what happened. And the three times when Jefferson writes about it, he sort of touches on it in a letter to Washington where he's basically saying he disagrees with the result of, of the meeting, right? And then he writes, and I'm going to give people some of the background. It's referred to as Jefferson's A-N-A-S, Annas. And in Jefferson's Annas, which is basically a collection of gossip and miscellaneous scraps of paper that he compiles together into a scrapbook, that's Jefferson's Annas, which is A-N-A-S. You've got to keep on saying it because the audience is that. thinking something else. Say that again? you got to keep on repeating Annas so that the audience doesn't think of something else. Right. So this is Jefferson's scrapbook. 
his, his scrapbook, which is from 1818. So he writes about this, and he goes into some detail. But the problem is, if he's writing about this in 1818, and let me give everybody the time frame, the meeting, if it happened, and it probably did, was 1790, because that's when the Residence Act was passed. It was July time frame, 1790, and the historians think that this meeting, which did occur, because it was a dinner meeting with Jefferson Madison tell the audience, and Hamilton, Tell the audience what you think it was. Say that again? Tell the audience what you think that occurred that day in that right. room. So we will. So the, the, the dinner meeting occurred probably on June 20th. But when Jefferson writes about it in 1818, you know, that's helped me with my math. 1818 compared to 1790, we're talking about basically 30 years later, Jefferson writes about it. So who knows what's going to shade his memory if it's 1818 instead of 1790 when it actually occurs. And there's also a, a note he makes in 1792, but he doesn't go into much detail in the note from 1792, which is not dated. So yeah, but that's, that's 28 years. Jefferson describing it, and they're not all exactly aligning with what, what Jefferson, he, he elaborates, or at least he develops the story over time. So we only know Jefferson's side. But what else do we know about this meeting? And what I've done in the last, uh, you know, I, I collect, if you will, Hamilton biographies and all kinds of history books. I'm always getting them from the library. So what do the different historians say describing this meeting? And the way that Jefferson describes it, and I'm going to lead, read you a little bit from one of Jefferson's descriptions. So Jefferson describes, and you know, he tries to set it up, that one day he sees Hamilton walking in front of the, the president's mansion, because back then they didn't have the White House. So let me read you from Jefferson's description. Okay, so Jefferson writes the following. And I have all kinds of notes here. Let me just find where I put it. I mean, it makes sense that it's got to be something to do with Washington because Hamilton uh, obviously was his not only protege, right-hand man, uh, but basically uh, his most uh, admired student. This meeting had to have something to do with Washington. And ultimately, I think your assessment is rock solid, and it's the first time I've heard it. And I know that you're going to you're going to prove it today that ultimately was a decision where to put the capital. Right. And, and that's the deal that's reached. And I'm glad that you're sort of teasing it out. So the deal, the ultimate compromise is and remember, the capital, as we said, was in New York at the time. And if you look at the Constitution, the Constitution, which was written in 1787, two years earlier, provides in Article one that there will be a district. They don't really have a name for it, but a federal district where the new capital will be a 10 miles, 10 square mile area. So 10 times 10 is you know, 100 square miles. So uh, long story short, we know there's going to be a capital, but Congress has to decide where they want to put that capital. And the Congress has to decide, will they gr agree on Hamilton's program? And the ultimate compromise was, yes, they're going to move the capital from New York temporarily for 10 years to Philadelphia, where the where the Constitution was written, and at the time Philadelphia was the, the largest city. And in addition to moving it for 10 years, during that 10-year period, they're going to start building Washington, D.C., and President Washington will supervise, because remember he was a surveyor, he'll supervise that process of building Washington, D.C., and he actually lays the, the stone, the cornerstone of the new capital. He hires the architect. He oversees the whole process. So Washington's very active in that. And for many years, he's, he's very busy with that. And, oh, but wait a second. I didn't think you were going to do that. I was setting you up for what we had discussed, that the story that I liked was the health of Washington and 
and the the luck of the uh, the luck of the of history that he survived uh, a turbulent uh, a terminal health issue, and having him involved in the, uh, and creating a, a a capital a location where it wasn't really discussed much, other than the fact that hey, it should be close to his home. You can see how the capital ends up in Washington D.C. less than an hour, maybe two hours of by horse and chariot. Sorry, I say chariot all the time, but I shouldn't say that. A horse and carriage. Uh, that's what I thought you were going to talk about, why we as a nation chose Washington, D.C. So you're asking good questions, and we're going to get to that. So I'm, I'm glad you're you like, brought it you up. You know, you're building this up all right. Okay. <laughs> so I'm giving everybody the background that you know, the new Congress in 1790 has to decide, are they going to agree to Hamilton's financial program? What are they going to do with Washington, D.C.? And ultimately, the compromise is uh, Virginia is going to get the capital very close to where Jefferson and Madison and Washington are going to want it. They're going to build it, as everybody knows, Washington, D.C. was part of Washington, of, of Virginia, and it was part of Maryland. They carved it out of northern Virginia and southern Maryland. So that's where they put it. So that's a southern victory. And the north and the states that had not paid off their debt, they get the assumption as part of the financial plan. Right, so that's the ultimate deal. So uh, you're making the point, which we talked about earlier, about, and let me give people some background here, that you know, thankfully and thank God, President Trump has recovered, as far as we know, pretty successfully from having COVID. But uh, when he first was diagnosed, I started doing some homework on, you know, what about other presidents being sick? And uh, to your point, Manny, in 1790, this is the time frame we're talking about, you know, the Constitution is 1787, the first Congress convened 1789, and in that April-May time frame, there was a, an epidemic of influenza. So let me read you a little bit about the influenza epidemic, and we're going to talk about Washington's health. And when I was you know, doing this work about the Residence Act, it occurred to me once I started reading about Washington getting very sick, maybe that was one of the reasons to your observation, that they decided to build the capital in Virginia. And that's the question. You know, did Washington's health factor into that conversation? Yeah, so, you're the first person to, to tell me that. And I want the audience to know that this might be the first time it's said on the air that Washington's health had a lot to do with today's location of its capital. So that's what I'm researching. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I've consulted with some other historians and I've been reading a lot of, you know, other historical accounts of the, the deal, the package, the compromise, and nobody, and I could give you the list of some of these names of what I've been reading, Gordon Wood and uh, John Meacham and uh, Chernow and uh, all kinds of, Brookheiser, I've been reading all kinds of books that talk about, the, and there's a new book coming out, by the way, uh, in early 2021 about the Capitol, and that's from an author from, uh, from FAU. You, uh, I'm sorry, from, from Lynn University, from Robert Watson. So he's got a book I want to talk to Robert Watson. But long story short, I was curious if Washington was so ill in 17, this is April and then May of 1790, did that factor into the, the building of the Capitol close to Washington? Because Mount Vernon is only uh, less than 10 miles. In fact, if you just look at the, the southern edge of Washington, D.C., apparently it's only four miles I haven't checked it myself. This is just Google. It's only about four miles to Mount Vernon. So Mount Vernon is very close to Washington, D.C. So I was wondering, is it possible that they took this into account? So we'll come back to that because the, the verdict is out because none of the historians give that as a reason for the compromise. But it seems logical to me that that may have been, right? That could have been a variable, even though I can't find any support for it in the letters or diaries. So we'll come back to that. So let's talk about the, the proof with regard to um, Washington being ill. So I'm going to read you 
And all of this, when I posted on Satchits and Stories, you know, this isn't Adam Levinson telling you what I think. I, I, I ground all these discussions in the, the primary sources. So I'm going to read you first from one of Washington's letters. So Washington is describing, this is a couple months after he improves, he describes that he's had two severe attacks, last worse than the first, and he says a third more than probable will put me to sleep with my fathers. He doesn't say it's going to kill me, but if he gets a third attack of this illness, he says it'll put me to sleep with my fathers. At what distance, they, uh, what distance this may be, I know not. Within the last 12 months, I have undergone more and severe sickness than, thir- than 30 preceding years afflicted me with put it all together. I have abundant reason, however, to be thankful that I am so well recovered, though I still feel the remains of the violent affection in my lungs, the cough, pain in my breast, and shortness of breath not having entirely left me. So, you know, this is Washington describing, basically, that if he gets sick like this again, he doesn't think he'll survive. All right, let me give you more proof of how sick Washington was. So Samuel Ogden, uh, this is uh, some of his writings. It says that the universal gloom throughout the country on account of the president's illness Edward Rutledge, who is part of the Rutledge family, uh, there's two Rutledge brothers, he reports that in South Carolina, people were, quote, greatly alarmed of late at the account of the president's ill health. And I'll read you from some newspaper articles if I have a chance, and I'll post all these on the website so people can read them for themselves. Madison, by the way, also got sick during this time period with a bout of influenza. And uh, Madison described Washington's illness as, quote, and back then they had different names for illnesses, but... Parapinumi, if I'm pronouncing it right, united probably with the influenza. So, you know, some sort of lung infection united with influenza. Maryland Congressman Michael Jennifer Stone described the illness as influenza, pleurisy, and pyrenomony all at once. So they're describing the illness that Washington had. And I'll point out that influenza at the time was epidemic, especially in the Northeast. In the spring of 1790, was particularly virulent or virulent in New York City. And uh, one of the senators, William McClay from Pennsylvania, reported that, quote, the whole town, so he's from Pennsylvania, he's in New York, because that's where Congress is meeting. So McClay on May 12th reports that, quote, the whole town, or nearly so, is sick, and many may die daily. Richard Henry Lee described the city of New York as, quote, a perfect hospital, few are well and many very sick. So clearly New York is going through this bad bout of influenza. And um, what else can I tell you? What about Washington's doctors? So Washington's doctors, Theodore Sedwick, reports on May 16th that about 5 o'clock in the afternoon yesterday, the physicians disclosed that they had no hope of his recovery, but about 6, so 6 in the morning, he began to sweat most profusely, which continued until the morning, and we are now told he is entirely out of danger if he should not relapse. So basically, Washington is sick in April. He gets a relapse, and he's sick again in early May, and he pulls through the night of the 15th into the 16th, and it looks like he's now in the clear. Washington survives, but it was, it was touch and go. So let's put the timeline together. Hamilton introduces his plan in January of 1790, his financial plan. Washington gets sick in April and May and almost dies in May, right? And the Residence Act and this meeting, the room where it happened, we think is on June 20th. So June 20th is basically a month from when Washington recovers. So I'm sort of asking myself, could that have impacted? And again, I need to prove this. I need to do more homework on it. And so far, the historians are not saying it has anything to do with it. But it seems to me that there may be some connection there. Who knows? All right, let me give you some other sources. Now, May 30th, because someone who writes a lot is the Adams. You know, this is Abigail Adams. So we're not just doing founding fathers, founding mothers. Abigail Adams writes on May 30th of 1790, quote, 
it appears to me that the union of the states and consequently the permanency of the government depend under providence upon his life. So she's writing about Washington being sick. And she, she says, at this early day, when neither our finances are arranged nor our government sufficiently cemented to promise duration, his health would, I fear, have had most disastrous consequences. His death would have had most disastrous consequences. And she echoes this idea that if Washington were to die, the legitimacy of the new government potentially will die with him. So Abigail Adams is worried that John is going to have to take over if anything happens to Washington. So this is in the end of May, where, where Abigail is writing about, you know, she's concerned that John may have to step up if Washington doesn't pull through. Okay. So here we go. Here's another example. Senator McClay, I mentioned, from Pennsylvania, writes in his journal that he was called to see the president. Every eye was full of tears, his life despaired of. And they even brought in Benjamin Franklin's physician. And Benjamin Franklin had died earlier. Um, and by the way, Franklin had died of an infection of his lungs. So it may have been the same influenza that killed Benjamin Franklin. So they're bringing in the best doctors from all over the country, including Franklin's doctor, uh, secretly to treat Washington. So, and then I could read you from Washington's diary. This is what he says. And Washington usually every day records a little entry in his diary. But on May 10th, he writes the following, and he takes off for, for some period of time. He doesn't write anymore in the diary because he's so sick. But on May 10th, he writes, a severe illness with which I was seized the 10th of this month and which left me in a convalescent state for several weeks after the violence of it had passed and little inclination to do more then what duty to the public required at my hands occasioned the suspension of this diary? So Washington describes, I'm not going to be writing or I haven't written in my diary for a while because I was so sick. So we know Washington was really sick. All right, what else can I do? I'm going to look at what Jefferson writes about Washington being sick. So Jefferson writes a letter to his eldest daughter. Her name was Martha, but he calls her Patsy. So Jefferson writes to his eldest daughter, Patsy Jefferson, on June 6th. And I'm not going to read all of it, but he, Jefferson had had a bad headache. He writes, I've had an attack of my periodical headache, very violent for a few days. It soon subsided. He goes on to say, I'm going tomorrow on a sailing party. All right, so Washington is now recovered. This is June 6th. And Jefferson writes, I'm going on a sailing party of three or four days with the president. Should we meet, see enough to make me sick, I shall hope it will carry off the remains of my headache. So we know that Jefferson winds up going, because what do the doctors back then prescribe? And back then, if you were sick, the doctors, they bleed you, and they try to give you some remedies, which you know are all hocus-pocus, and rubs, and uh, leeches, right? But they want you to get out. Basically, they think that exercise and being out in the fresh air is healthy. So one of the things that they prescribe for Washington when he's well enough to stand up is for him to go get out of New York on a carriage or on his horse and, and just get out and get exercise because they thought that was very healthy. So he recovers starting on May 16th. And we know from Jefferson that Jefferson and Washington and also Hamilton probably accompanied them go on this fishing trip to, to Sandy Hook. They go to New Jersey, they go fishing, and they talk. And if that occurs on June 6th, for a couple of days, that's bringing you very close to the June 20 meeting where Jefferson, Madison, and Hamilton, according to Jefferson, reached this compromise. So let me read you from Jefferson's 1818 ANAS, which is his, his scrapbook, if you will. So this is what Jefferson says about the meeting in the room where it happened. I just found where it was. And it, it's, it's fairly detailed, but I'm going to skip to the meat of it. Okay, so Jefferson describes how he comes back from Paris. You know, he's sort of new to the whole operation. He didn't even know he was Secretary of State until his ship arrives in, in the Virginia area. Okay, so he's describing what happens years later. He says, 
Let's see. All right, I told him that I was really a stranger to the whole subject. Uh, he doesn't understand how all the finances work. And let me talk about where he sees Hamilton. All right, here it is. Here we go. All right, so Jefferson writes that Congress met and adjourned from day to day without doing anything. Because Hamilton's plan is introduced in January, February, March, April, May, is bogged down in Congress. They have not adopted Hamilton's program. So Jefferson is describing that Congress met and adjourned from day to day without doing anything, the parties being too much out of temper to do business together. The Eastern members, particularly who with Smith of South Carolina, were the principal gamblers in the scenes, tightened, threatened succession and dissolution. So you know, some of the states are saying we're not getting this done, and they disagree with some of the proposals. So the, here, here's where he talks about Hamilton. Jefferson writes, Hamilton was in despair. As I was going to the president's one day, I met him in the street. And this is a very famous scene, according to Jefferson. So Hamilton was in despair. As I was going to the president's one day, I met him in the street. He walked me backwards and forwards before the president's door for half an hour. He painted pathetically the temper into which the legislature had been wrought, the disgust of those who were called the creditor states, the danger of the succession of their members, and the separation of the state. So basically, Jefferson is saying that, you know, that Hamilton is describing the country could come apart because the states are threatening to secede, the Union may dissolve. This is Jefferson writing. He observed, Hamilton, he observed that the members of the administration ought to act in concert. And remember, Hamilton is Secretary of Treasury, and Jefferson is the other Secretary of, of State, and the only other department is war. So he observed, Hamilton, that the members of the administration ought to act in concert, that though this question may was not of my department, yet a common duty should make it a common concern. So he's describing how Hamilton's trying to get Jefferson to work with him. I'm skipping ahead. And this is where it gets interesting. I told him that I was really a stranger to the whole subject of the financial deal, not having yet informed myself of the system of finances adopted. I knew not how far this was a necessary sequence. He goes on to say, if it's rejection engendered a dissolution of our union at this incipient stage, I should deem that the most unfortunate of all consequences to avert which all partial and temporary evils should be yielded. I proposed to him, however, to dine with me the next day, and I would invite another friend or two, which tells us friend or two, it's not just Madison, another friend or two, bringing them into conference together, and I thought it impossible that reasonable men, consulting together coolly, could fail by some mutual sacrifices of opinion to form a compromise. So this is where Jefferson is describing that he invites Madison and Hamilton, and they're going to have dinner at Jefferson's, uh, his house, which is in the southern part of Manhattan, and uh, that's Jefferson's account, and I won't read all of it, but I will put it on the website. Now, so, the, the, when you say New York, doesn't that doesn't that go contrary to the 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 position that the, that Washington can even travel to New York? In other words, he's healthy enough. So at the time they were meeting in New York, Washington does recover because, remember, he's well enough to go uh, fishing with Jefferson and probably with Hamilton on June 6th. Uh, but you're right. You know, he's going to be slowed down a little bit until he's back, and he does gradually recover. Uh, but you know, this gets to this larger question, which we don't know the answer to, because I cannot find historians who say that Washington's health fits into this conversation. But it seems to me, and this is the argument that I want to try to make, that Hamilton loved Washington, and a lot of them all love Washington. And if Washington's health was compromised, it makes sense to move the capital. And I should point out that there were probably two dozen proposals. You know, Hamilton wanted it, if it couldn't stay in New York, he wanted it to move to New Jersey. 
because you know he had spent time yeah. in Jersey. It's close to New York. Uh, pretty much all the states except for Georgia, and I'm exaggerating, but there are multiple proposals of where the capital should be built. But it seems to make sense to me. You know, sure. Hamilton doesn't want it to leave New York, but if he has to have it leave and it's not going to be in the New York area, it seems to me Hamilton would not have disagreed with putting it convenient to Washington because Washington is so important to the country. So, and, you know, maintaining his health is important to the country. So I want to skip now. I read you from Jefferson's, one of Jefferson's three accounts, and he goes into more detail if you read more about it. Um, but I want to read you now about the voting that occurs. And what I've done is I've looked to see not just about Washington's health, but what the other historians say about the deal that was actually struck. So let me read you from some of the historians. And some of these names people remember, because we bring them up during different meetings and different, different evenings. And these are very famous historians. So Joseph Ellis and Chernow, who wrote the Hamilton and Washington biography, and Gordon Wood, who's more of an academic historian, right? And then McCullough, who wrote about the John Adams 20 years ago. He got a lot of attention. So I looked to see some of those books, which are on my shelf. And let me read you what some of the historians have said. So this is McCullough in his book about John Adams. McCullough writes, whether in fact the outcome was resolved in this fashion, the way Jefferson describes it, is not altogether clear, but certainly Jefferson believed the bargain had been settled, right? And he describes and quotes from Jefferson. So McCullough isn't saying this is true, but he's saying that Jefferson believed this is what the deal was. All right, so that's McCullough. What about Chernow? So Chernow says, and uh, you know, he's we've got several books, but Chernow writes, what likely scuttled Hamilton's deal let me skip ahead. All right. Basically, what Chernow was saying is that the dinner consecrated a deal that was probably already close to achievement. So in other words, Chernow is not saying that the deal was reached in that apartment or that location where Jefferson invited Madison and, 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 uh, and Hamilton, but the deal was consecrated, possibly, but it had already probably been worked out between the various parties in Congress. Okay, uh, and he goes on to say, well, likely scuttled Hamilton's deal because Hamilton had proposed that it be in New Jersey, was that the Pennsylvania and Virginia delegations had already reached an understanding. Philadelphia would become the temporary capital, and the Potomac site, which is Washington D.C., the permanent capital. Capital. So the evidence appears to be that the Virginia and Pennsylvania delegations had already worked this out. We didn't need Jefferson to come swooping in uh, to solve the the story. All right, what a, that's churn out. Let's talk about Ellis. So in his book Founding Brothers, Ellis writes. We cannot know how many secret meetings and political dinners occurred in New York during the late spring and early summer of 1790. We do know that Jefferson's famous dinner was not, as he implied, the only such occasion. But the ones we know about demonstrate conclusively, so Ellis is pretty clear about this, that these other meetings that we know about demonstrate conclusively that the compromise reached over Jefferson's dinner table is really the final chapter in an ongoing negotiation that came together because the ground had already been prepared. So that's what Ellis has to say about it. And then he writes uh, an entire chapter in, in the book Founding Brothers and in some of his other books. He, he writes a biography of Washington. Uh, so he touches on it in various ways. Uh, Wood, the historian Wood in 2009, writes, at a dinner arranged by Jefferson in late June 2000, I'm sorry, in June 1790, Hamilton and Madison clinched a deal which the Southerners would accept. So the historians you know, who write biographies are not saying the deal was reached at that meeting. Um, in other words, Ellis says, in his biography of Washington, that there were multiple behind-the-scenes bargaining sessions going on at the same time, and you know it, it just rings better here. He says that um, the notion that an apparently intractable 
political controversy could be resolved by a friendly conversation over port or you know alcohol and cigars uh, you know has possessed an irresistible charm so people love the legend the mythology that it all occurred at this meeting with Jefferson Hamilton and Madison but it's more complex than that yeah so now, like go into but one thing that one thing i so, notice is the mainstay is the <laughs> is the charm of the cigar how about that <laughs> well, it makes an interesting story. So when you look at the historical journals written by you know, historians, uh, so Jacob Cook, he really went into the details of the debates, right? And uh, you know, it's described as the dinner table bargain. It's described as the residence question, or it's referred to as the compromise of 1790, the great compromise of 1790. So Cook, Jacob Cook writes that, you know, it's generally regarded as one of the most important bargains in American history, ranking just below the Missouri Compromise and the Compromise of 1850. So it's a famous deal, but what are the specifics? What actually happened, right? He says it's surely one of the most famous dinner parties in our history, but the evidence, he says, renders the traditional account, in other words, Jefferson's account, suspect, particularly the congressional debates, render Jefferson's account suspect. So what does Cook tell us? And the other historians are basically building upon this record. So Cook describes how the bargain was arranged before Jefferson's dinner party on June 20th. The Virginians, who were disturbed by the House vote for Baltimore, because Baltimore wanted it in Baltimore, took the initiative by proposing through an ally, which was Congressional uh, Congressman George Matthews of Georgia, that an extended stopover be in Philadelphia um, to get Pennsylvania to support the project in the Potomac. Right, that he says that the essential bargain on residence then was between Virginia and Pennsylvania, which was set in motion even before the famous dinner meeting, which really had nothing to do with assumption of debts. So if you keep reading about some of the other historians, and you can look at the, the, the chronology of the debates. So on April 12th, Hamilton's assumption plan was defeated. So the South is, has enough votes to stop Hamilton's assumption on April 12th, assumption of debts. On June 2nd, the House adopts a funding bill so to fund the foreign debt and the federal debt without assumption. That's June 2nd. And the critical debates began taking place after the House rejects assumption on June 2nd. And you can see the timing here. Washington was very ill in May, but these votes are taking place in the House in June. And the House is basically saying assumption is dead as of June 2nd. Right? And um, just to give more details on the chronology, let me skip ahead. So the chronology, January, I said, is when January 9th, Hamilton introduces it. Uh, Washington's fever, we said, breaks May 16th. He's in bed probably through May 20th before he starts getting out of bed. Then in June, he goes, sh he goes fishing with Jefferson and probably Hamilton. All right, um, April 12th, we said the House votes down assumption. Uh, two weeks later, the, the House votes to discontinue all debate on the issue of assumption. And then May 31st, you've got a bill for the residents. The residents bill, not the assumption bill, is produced by a South Carolina senator, and he leaves the location blank. And I don't want to get into too many of the details. It'll all be on the website. But you know, it looks like the House is deadlocked in early June. June 11th, the House votes to strike Philadelphia and insert Baltimore, and the Senate rejects Baltimore, so they're fighting over the locations. This is in early June. Then you have the dinner on June 20th. And... Ultimately, if you just go ahead forward to connect all the dots, the act, and there were several bills, because it's the Residence Act, and then you have the different pieces of the funding plan. But on July 1, and it has to go through the House and the Senate, so on July 1, the act for the establishing temporary and permanent seat of the government was passed by the Senate on July 1, 1412. The House passes a bill on July 9th, so about a week later, 3229, and President Washington signs that bill into law on July 16th. 
So what's the, the takeaway? The takeaway is that it's not as simple as Jefferson describes it. If you look at the actual votes, uh, what apparently happened, and this is when you really get into the weeds and I won't bore people with the details, but when Hamilton proposed the assumption plan, he was saying that we'll pay interest at 6% for um, the amount that's owed going forward on the federal, when we give bonds or IOUs, for because we're, that's how we're going to pay off the debt is we're going to issue bonds we're going to sell bonds right and we're going to pay the bonds with a regular income over the period of time that that it's referred to as a sinking fund but over the time that the bond is owed we're going to pay regular amounts of uh, we're paying back principal over the life of the bond that we're going to be selling to to cover to pay off the debts right um, so we're going to pay these bonds and good news was that we started having problems in Europe with the French Revolution so a lot of Europeans decide to buy American bonds and that helps fund the federal government, which is another story for another date. But Hamilton proposed that we'll pay 6% interest going forward, but he says on the amount of the debt which was owed, the arrearages, we should only pay that at 4%. So that was what he was proposing in January. But as it turns out, it looks, and without getting too much into the details, uh, you know, it looks like the remaining parts of the deal that still had to be hashed out were what the rate of interest would be and um, you know, how the amount of debt from the different states would be finalized because there was a process of figuring out what the different state debts were, and they threw money into the conversation to make sure that enough money went to the different states uh, so that everybody got some of that revenue. So you know, those were, as it turns out, those were the final details that probably had to be worked out. But the underlying deal, the underlying, yes, Philadelphia for 10 years and then ultimately to create a location on the Potomac, that you know, it was already worked out before the, the June 20th meeting with Washington, Hamilton, and Madison. So let me give you some more evidence about this. So what, what does the Residence Act do? And this gets to one of your points, Manny. The Residence Act gives President Washington the authority to pick the location. And we said that Washington was a surveyor in his youth, and Washington you know, took an interest in this. I'll point out to you that he laid the cornerstone of the Capitol on September 18th, of 1793. So within three years, they're already laying out where the capital is going to be because Congress is going to have to move in in 1800, and it does move in in 1800. And I'll point out to you that the folks in Philadelphia, you know, they thought that if you get the location of the capital here for 10 years, they're not going to want to leave. And the last thing they're going to want to do is move to the middle of nowhere because Washington, D.C. back then was basically all swamp. And this is where we like to say, you know, some people think it's still swamp, but that's a whole separate conversation. So... (laughs) No, well, I don't think it's, I don't think there's with, much debate that it's still swamp. <laughs> we can debate that all day long. So you know, the Congress uh, during the Articles, the period of time prior to the new Constitution, the Constitution you know, under the Articles, which is called the Articles of Con- the Articles of Confederation, that the Congress stayed in Philadelphia for a period of time. They were in New Jersey and Princeton. They were in Trenton, New Jersey. They were in Annapolis, Maryland. So you had a roving Congress from from place to place, and they settled in New York as of 1787 is where they were located. But um, here, here we get to a little the sad part of the story, so we only have about 10 minutes left. But Washington took an active role in some of the things he did. He oversaw the surveying, the negotiating the land deals because they had to buy the land. He raised, helped raise funds. He selected the architect for the Capitol in the White House. He oversaw the plans. You know, he picked a specific location, and the three 
you know, I forgot what they were called, the commissioners that were in charge of organizing the District of Columbia, the three commissioners were all reporting back to Washington. So he took a very active role in, in seeing the system put in place, the building of the Washington, D.C., but, um, and Congress moves in in 1800 is when you know, Adams was the president, uh, Jefferson is going to take over after that election, which we did another show on the election of 1800, but Jefferson is going to be the first president you know, with this new Adams for for, for a brief period of time, but then Jefferson really is the one that's going to start living uh, for all intents and purposes in the brand new White House. Washington was there just for a brief period of time. So what's the point? The point is that Washington, yes, he survived that early bit of influenza in 1790. He was worried about his health, and Washington knew that men in his family, his brother died at a young age, his father died at a young age. So Washington was concerned that he, you know, how much longer can he live when he had such a bad case of influenza? But he lives to help build Washington, D.C., um, but he, d- he dies in 1799. So before Congress actually moves in, Washington dies about six months before the Congress moves into the new building, into the new location. So he came close, but he didn't quite get to get to move in. So I promised you that I would read from some of the newspaper articles, because I will be posting these on Satchelton Stories. But let me go back to some of these newspaper articles. And it's interesting to you know, look at these original primary sources. So I have an article, and I'll tell people that if you subscribe to newspapers.com and also the Library of Congress, you can find, and it's fascinating to read these old newspapers, some of the advertisements and other things you learn when you look at these old, the language is a little bit different. So here we have the Gazette of the United States, which was the, the Philadelphia newspaper. Um, and I, I should be careful saying that because it may have been New York. I'm not sure. The Gazette of the United States, so I have to double check if it's printed in New York or in, in Philadelphia. But long story short, there is basically a prayer, and it's a letter dated April 28th. I won't read all of it. But uh, you have someone basically saying a prayer for Washington. So people were worried. So it goes on to say, a life so precious should be watched with the eyes of Argus. Health so important should be nurtured with the vigilance of angels. Constant exercise in the open air and perpetually diversifying the scene are necessary as the circulation of the vital fluid. This is what they thought their health was, vital fluid. And he goes on to say, I ask pardon from my proper, deviating from my proper line, but to the prayer of millions, the most attentive attention should be added for the preservation of a life, he's talking about Washington, which every one of us feels, but no one can express the importance of. And again, this is a, a prayer, basically, for the president. I understand that the, the cause of delayed indisposition, they're not calling it an illness, they're calling it indisposition, uh, for the city is undoubtedly one of the healthiest functions of the United States. He's bemoaning the fact that, that uh, the Washington is so sick and New York is, uh, is otherwise a healthy city. All right, so you can read that prayer for Washington from April of 1790. I also have, once they realized that Washington was better, this is May 19th in the, in the Pennsylvania Gazette. The public may be assured the president, they don't say his name, the president of the United States is recovering from his indisposition. Another article in the Pennsylvania Gazette from May 26th. From the best authority, we can assure the people of America that the president's recovery is now certain. The fever has entirely left him, and there is a most happy prospect of a perfect restoration of his health, May 26th. So why didn't the Democrats do it this time? After all these years, they could have just said, hey, Donald Trump is healing. He's doing great. Eh, Nothing... No, no, no. I'm going to read you now from, this is now June 12th in the Pennsylvania Packet, which again was another, another newspaper, and June 10th from New York. This is an account 
uh, you know, today people actively follow what the president does. It was no different back then. So this is a, an account dated June 10th in the June 12th paper about the president going on that fishing expedition. So here you have an article saying, and these aren't really articles, these are little excerpts. Yesterday afternoon, the president of the United States returned from Sandy Hook. And you might ask you, what fish was he catching? So he returned from Sandy Hook and the fishing banks where he had been for the benefit of the sea air and to amuse himself in the delightful recreation of fishing. And they spell fishing F-I-T-H-I-N-G. We are told, or F-I-F-H-I-N-G, F-I-F-H-I-N-G, we are told he has had excellent sport, having himself caught a great number of sea bass and blackfish. And we, and weather, uh, the weather proved remarkably fine, which together with the salubrity of the air and wholesome exercise rendered his little voyage extremely agreeable. So again, Washington has improved. He goes fishing June 10th. And we know Jefferson went with him and probably Hamilton too. So they may have been talking about this during that fishing trip. All right, so what have we covered? We've covered Washington was ill in May. Congress reaches these deals in the June and July time frame. And uh, let's see, we are about five minutes or so. You got seven minutes. Say that again, Manny? You got seven minutes to close. All right, so I'm going to read you from Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, because the Constitution didn't say where to build Washington, D.C. This is what Article 1, Section 8 says. The Congress shall have power, and I'm skipping, to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district as may, by cessation of particular states, and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of the government of the United States. So the Constitution says if the states cede or give up land, that will be the seat of the government, and it says not to exceed 10 miles square. So that's all the Constitution says. And as we mentioned earlier, dozens of American towns were proposed because everybody wants the capital to be, to be in their town. But ultimately, the deal that was reached uh, was not just struck in that one dinner engagement, but it was worked out with uh, Pennsylvania and Virginia delegations. And Pennsylvania was one of the big states. Virginia was one of the big states. And the largest city at the time was Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the largest city probably for another two decades. And you can look at the census to see that Philadelphia was larger than New York. Um, so it was Philadelphia, meaning Pennsylvania and Virginia delegations worked out their, their deal. And as I said earlier, that the Pennsylvania folks thought that if they could bring the capital for 10 years, that no one would ever want to leave to go to Virginia. But with Washington working so hard on it and with so much vote coming from Virginia and so much domination coming from Virginia, yes, it did move. And Jefferson made sure it moved uh, once he was elected in 1800. What else can I tell you? I'm going to skip ahead and just read from some of the other historians. What have they said about this? And I mentioned that the Residence Act gave George Washington the authority to pick the exact location of the Capitol, which he did. And let me read you some of the historians. So I talked about Ellis. Let me mention a little bit about Meekum. So Meekum is a historian who does a lot on TV. And he says the final result, Jefferson believed, was the least bad of all the turns the thing can take. So, again, they're saying Jefferson believed. Right, and Jefferson leaves out. He may or may not have understood that there was still a lot of behind-the-scenes bargaining that was taking place. Other historians that I want to look at, and I haven't looked at some of the older historians. So Henry Cabot Lodge was a historian who was a senator, and we've talked about Lodge in the past. Well, wait a second. Uh, there's a Cabot Lodge of that of that era. I'm so Henry Cabot Lodge was in the the turn of the century, around 1900, and that yeah, time he was uh, he was the first to uh, claim him and his son both uh, uh, 
dad was the first to claim that we should take and or purchase or 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 save Cuba from Spanish tyranny. So the Lodge family was an important family from Massachusetts. He was very involved with federal and international law and treaties and so forth. And, you know, in his day job, he was a historian, and he wrote biographies of the American statesmen. So he wrote a very important biography of Hamilton. So I haven't had a chance to check Henry Cabot Lodge's history, you know, his biography of Hamilton. I want to see what he mentions. I also want to check that Hamilton's son, and this is also pointed out in the musical, his son, John Church Hamilton, wrote a, you know, it took him years to do it, and Hamilton's wife, Eliza, it was really pushing for this to get written. She wanted it to be written before she died. She wanted to preserve Hamilton's legacy. So I want to check what John Church Hamilton's son, sorry, let me say that correctly, I want to see what John Church Hamilton, who was Hamilton's son, what he writes in connection with this dinner deal. And I have a feeling that Church Hamilton, John Church Hamilton, doesn't talk about it at all, because it was only Jefferson where it was writing about it. So I don't think Hamilton's son writes about it at all, because it's not in Hamilton's correspondence. So, you know, there, there's more to the story. I'll report back in a, uh, in a future episode. But, uh, you know, the, the point is, and this now dovetails with the book club, so the, the book that we're going to be reading is about mythology in Hamilton and you know, this mythology that's created around him. And we, we, we've talked about how you know, Hamilton, for many, many years, the pendulum was treating Hamilton as, as a, you know, an opponent of democracy, as a, a Wall Street sort of speculator guy, as someone who, yes, he was important with Washington, but you know, the, 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 the early years of the country after Hamilton died, you know, his, his respect and his admiration and his, um, you know, we, we have a mall in Washington, D.C. with the Jefferson Monument and with the Madison Monument and with the Lincoln Memorial, right? There's the Washington Monument, but there are no monuments to Hamilton. So Hamilton was added, he was disfavored for many years. And it's only been in the last 20 or so years. And it wasn't starting with Chernow, but it was starting with Brookheiser, where you know, modern historians have now re-embraced Hamilton and appreciated what Hamilton accomplished. So as we leave, and this is sort of a tie-in to the book club, so I'm going to read you a little bit from the book, as I've, I've also been you know, trying to brush up for our book club meeting this Sunday. So what does, and this is Professor Knott, who will be joining us Sunday at 6 o'clock, and I want to remind people the way you register in order to get the password. I'm going to read you a quote, but I'm also going to make sure I give the address. of It's register at hamiltonbookclub.com. Let me just verify that. So the, yeah, so if you want to register, it's register ampersand. So register at alexanderhamiltonbookclub.com. So here is a quote uh, which gets you ready for the book. And you don't have to have read the book before the book club because we're going to be talking about it. So let me read you just a little bit about the, the, the book by Knott. So Knott points out, let's see, that, let me get a good quote. Um, He's quoting George Will. So George Will, and George Will was a very famous conservative commentator who was a good friend with with Ronald Reagan. George Will, uh, who's quoted in the book by Professor Knott, and George Will says, there's an elegant memorial in Washington to Jefferson, but none to Hamilton. However, if you seek Hamilton's monument, look around, you are living in it. We honor Jefferson, but live in Hamilton's country. And one of the things that Nod is going to point out is that Jefferson was the poet of America's founding. You know, Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, right? So Jefferson was the poet of America's founding, but Hamilton was the nation's builder who infused the essential elements of permanence and stability into the American system. 
So that is yeah a, the great um, the great visionary. It's he pretty... was a visionary, and that's sort of the, the, the I'm teeing up the prelude, uh, heading into the evolution of Hamilton's controversial image, which will be discussed by Stephen Knott this coming Sunday. And uh, everybody, uh, again, thanks for tuning in. And if you go to the the website statutesandstories.com, uh, within the next couple of days, I will be posting what we've just talked about tonight, and people can read it for themselves. And this audio recording on WSQFradio.com should be posted up tomorrow, as well as all the other statues and stories, interviews, and conversations. So stay free, my friends, and thank you very much for joining us here on WSQF Blink Radio. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Good night. You are listening to WSQF 94.5 FM Blink Radio, broadcasting to Miami and, of course, Key Biscayne. WSQF Blink Radio.